You probably only skimmed that email I spent an hour writing. And let's be equally honest the other way. I only skimmed the document your team worked on most of last week. This is the reality of how we all read in a busy world. In this episode, how to write so that people actually read what you send. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 666. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing Human Potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Of course, one of the key skills that we all need to, if not master, at least get better at as leaders is the ability to get people reading, paying attention to the messages that we send. Those messages are sometimes verbal, of course, sometimes in video, but oftentimes many of our communications, in fact, the vast majority of mine every day, are in writing. And even though a lot of us don't think of ourselves as writers, the reality is we spend a lot of our time writing and communicating through that medium every single day. It is a key competency for us to get better at as leaders. And I'm so glad today to welcome a guest who's an expert at this. It's going to help us to do a better job of thinking of how we can actually get people paying attention to the things that we send. I'm so pleased to introduce Todd Rogers. He's a professor of public policy at Harvard University, where he's won teaching awards for the past seven consecutive years. He is a behavioral scientist and the co-founder of the Analyst Institute and Everyday Labs. His opinion pieces have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, Politico, and many other outlets. He's co-author with Jessica Lasky-Fink of Writing for Busy Readers, Communicate More Effectively in the Real World. Todd, what a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Dave. Very excited to talk about this work with you. I think most people in leadership roles don't think of themselves as writers. And I, I think about this identity of being a writer myself, and I actually have writing as a key component of my job. And I often don't even think about myself as a writer. When people say to you, they see your book, they know a bit about your work, and they say, well, that's great, but I'm not a writer. How do you respond to that? I think that you've got the right intuition in that, well, it doesn't take much reflection to realize that we all write, whether it's text messages or emails, or whether we write proposals or pitches or memos to our teams. We write in lots of different capacities, both professionally and personally. And we probably write more words today than humans have ever written before. So I think, and Jessica and I say this explicitly in the book, that we're all writers, whether we think we are or not. You write in the book, proper grammar and punctuation, full sentences, and appropriate word choice are almost always useful. But if you email your company's leadership team a five-paragraph essay about how a client meeting went, they're unlikely to read it, no matter how beautiful the prose. These dueling styles, formal writing and practical writing, coexist uncomfortably in our heads, and most of us have never been trained on how to combine them into effective writing. You know, I think about those two distinctions. Of course, so many of us learn formal writing in school, but we haven't had a lot of instruction, most of us, on practical writing. What's the distinction between them, and how is it that they play together? We are all taught how to write well, and that's the first part of what you just read. We're taught in K-12 and in college, and then we get feedback about how to write 
beautiful sentences that flow into paragraphs and that flow into some kind of argument. We are never taught how to write effectively. And by effectively, I and Jessica mean specifically successfully writing in a way that helps us achieve our goals. We write with a purpose. How do we successfully transfer the information or successfully elicit a response from the reader with what we write? And it really does start with how do people read? Because we should write in a way that accommodates the way that they actually read. And speaking of how we read, there's a four-word quote that I highlighted in the book, and it says, spoiler alert, everybody skims. It's just the reality (laughs) of how we approach reading almost anything, isn't it? Right. I mean, people are busy. Everybody has something else that what usually when they're reading what we write, their goal, though it may be discouraging or even demoralizing for us as writers, their goal is to move on as quickly as possible from the thing that we put in front of their face. And so given that, that means they are jumping around, darting, trying to aggressively move on. And often that means moving on without understanding what we said, because the time runs out or they say they'll do it later or they think they pulled the gist out, but they didn't really. And so the idea is everybody's busy, everybody's skimming. And this is true even for text messages. I teach in my class, I teach this, I lots of organizations, governments, military, like I, I train this stuff all the time now. And it always starts with like, raise your hand if you've ever sent or received a text message and looked at it and said, I can't deal with that right now. Mm-hmm. Even with text messages, everybody's hand goes up, right? Which is like, everybody's trying... Everybody's busy, everybody's got a lot to do, and they're all skimming. And so our goal as writers, our, our, the requirement for us as writers is to write in a way that makes it easy for our readers, because that helps us achieve our goals, and it's kinder to our readers. One of the studies in the book cites that people report skimming 40% of emails. And I think about that and what you just said of the experience we all have. We get into our inbox of like, all right, I want to process what's in my inbox as fast as I possibly can so I can get on to the other things that I really need to be doing, right? And yet, it's so interesting how, at least for me, there's a disconnect between, I think we all can appreciate that experience of wanting to get through things quickly, not wanting to spend a lot of time in email, skimming text messages. But then when we're on the other side, it's like we forget all that. Like we start composing these long emails. We think people read every single word. We're really careful on our punctuation and our grammar and putting all the details in there. It's it's really fascinating. There's such a disconnect there, isn't there? Yeah, there's this perspective taking error, which is like, well, this is the most important thing to me right now. So it will probably be the most important thing to you when you read it. <laughs> yeah. it, uh, it I don't know how much your audience lo- likes these social psychology experiments that are hilarious, but one of my favorites is this dissertation by Elizabeth Newton, where she asks half the people to come in and tap a song that is widely known. And sometimes it's like happy birthday or the wheels on the bus and you tap it on the table. And you predict what percent of listeners will be able to figure out what song you're tapping. And you're invariably, it's like 90% of listeners will be able to understand my song. And then they then play your song for other people, and it's less than 2%. Mm-hmm. And we just are really not awesome at, at imagining ourselves on the other side. And in the case of writing, as you're noting, when we're writing it, it's important to us. So we mistakenly think they'll probably read it as carefully as we're writing it. 
I find myself making this error all the time, and we may talk about some of the examples where I've erred, but this this book is really brilliant at helping us to like get on that other side and take that perspective. And one of the key principles that you talk about in the book, in fact, it's the first principle, is that less is more. And one of the key invitations you make is to use fewer words. And I'm quoting Jessica and you now. You say, in one study, we sent two versions of an email to 7,000 school board members across the U.S. requesting they complete a short online survey. One email was 127 words. The other was 49 words. The concise email yielded nearly twice as many survey responses as the wordy email, a 4.8% response rate instead of 2.7% response. It's There's example after example of studies in the book of how significant is just cutting down the number of words makes as far as how people engage. Yes. There's a second half to that study that I think we talk about later. And this is a consistent pattern also. We have never found that fewer words is, is worse when it comes to eliciting a response or helping people getting your readers to actually read. But the interesting second half is that consistently people don't have that intuition. When they read both, they either think they'll perform equally or they think the longer one will be more effective. Read meaning like we get someone who's unrelated, not the writer, not the recipient, to read both carefully. We are prompting you to read both. And now tell me which one's going to be more effective. And very often they think the longer one will be more effective because it's more respectful. It's more detailed. It's more content. It's more, it, it conveys more information. But that that intuition is wrong because they're not putting themselves in the perspective of the reader whose goal very often is to move on as quickly as possible. Yeah. And knowing how bad our intuition tends to be on this, especially when we're the one who's sending the message, what do you find is helpful for people who actually get beyond kind of like the, okay, I understand this like theoretically, but actually start taking information out? And I know you work with a lot of organizations to like help people get messages to be more concise. What actually works to start doing that in practice? So a, a good exercise that is, that's kind of fun. And we did, Jessica and I did a study that uh, we report in the book where we were working with a, a big organization that has, that communicates with journalists, 50,000 journalists to give them information every week to help their reporting. And they, it is, they are writers, the people running the organization and writing their newsletter and reports. So they're excellent writers. They're experienced professional writers. And they approached us and they're like, hey, we're done with our latest report and newsletter. What, sh- what experiment would you like to run? And I said, with 30 minutes, you just spent probably 20 hours or 10 hours writing this thing. With 30 minutes, cut it in half in your own writing. So as well as you can. So like just the exercise of cutting 50% of the words. When then we'll run an experiment with your 50,000 people. And so they did, they gave, they, with 30 minutes, they cut it in half. And then we had a version original and then a version concise. And we did the experiment and the concise led to twice as many journalists using the content they developed. Oh, wow. And so like the idea, I just, you ask like, how do we do it? I think it's a productive exercise to actually just see if you can cut it in half. And then afterwards, once you've done the work, look at them. And if you can test them, test them. But if not, I'm going to say, please vote for the shorter one. Okay, it's so funny you mentioned this because I sort of did my own little mini study this week unintentionally. I had a interview earlier this week and I sent a email to the guest the day before and um 
we got on the line and she said, oh, I know you sent me an email. I skimmed it, but I can't uh, remind me what, you know, it was like one of those things. And and by the way, I hear that a lot. That's not an uncommon thing. And And then I was emailing you yesterday talking about our conversation on Less Is More. And I thought, well, it'd be pretty ironic if I sent you a long email, <laughs> right? So I pulled up the email after I had written it, and I said, I'm going to take two minutes and see if I can make this email way more concise than it normally is. And I went back and looked, and the email I sent to the other guest was, let's see, 293 words. The email I sent to you was 161 words. So I cut out almost half of what I normally send. And you replied right away, and you (laughs) referenced I know you read the whole email too, because you referenced something I said in the very last line of the message. And I just, granted, it's a study of two, <laughs> right? But I just thought, wow, just in my own experience this week of like me stopping for a minute or two and pulling out 40, 50% of the words that I normally send made a huge difference in just how someone else responded to something I thought was important. <laughs> I, I see that I know that it is just two people in your experiment, but yeah, yeah. you can look you can look at my inbox to see that I have I am not a swift responder to most of the messages that are sitting in there. Yeah, that that's great. I, I'm sorry that I caused that kind of angst for you. To, <laughs> <laughs> I know that I hear this a bunch. That people are like, I, I I sat on this message for a while because I wasn't sure if you would judge me. And for anyone who communicates <laughs> with me, I want I want to let it officially be known. I, I do not sit in judgment in my inbox. I, I am going fast like everyone else, but I try to reserve judgment. It turns out re- communicating is hard. Yeah, it is. It is. And that's why, I mean, there's so much, I mean, we're just we're just going to be hitting on one piece of the book here, but there's so much just in this less is more principle of like one is use fewer words, right? Like just starting, I mean, taking 30 seconds a minute, not on every email, but like the ones that really matter, the message you're sending to your board, the message you're sending to your top client, the message you're sending to a key stakeholder, like take a take 30 seconds or a minute to see, can you make that more concise? And one of the other messages that I love in the book is include fewer ideas, which is different than including fewer words. And I'm really fascinated by, in fact, the most fascinating thing to me in this book is a study you mentioned of a fundraising email that you worked on that went out to, in a political campaign, I think there were like 700,000 donors. And the original email that the campaign had put together was six paragraphs. And you and your team kind of looked at this. And I'm I wonder if you could share like kind of that process of what happened. <laughs> yeah, good. I, I love this one. And and typically, and we can tell your listeners now, this is the single vivid example you will remember because it's so funny. But I just want to situate us when we, less is more is one of the six principles. And in it, there are three rules. One is fewer words, which anyone who's read Strunk and White, the elements of style, it's it's just right on 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 the team with, omit needless words, they said. That's cheap, easy, and you should do it. Instead of saying, the reason for this is, you could just say, because. Or in order to, you could just say, to. It's it's faster for readers. It's easier. It's more likely they'll respond. That's cheap and easy. The harder one that requires more judgment as writers is not just omit 
needless words. It's omit only kind of useful ideas. And it really requires like a deep internalizing that the more you add, the less likely someone is to read and respond. The optimal number of ideas or words is not one, right? So you know your context, you know your goals, and you have to try to achieve those within that context. But all that said, on the margin, every additional thing you add decreases the likelihood someone will read and respond. Mm-hmm. And so it's just ju- it's just judgment calls. And so this experiment you described that is I, I love, and I'm glad that you flagged this one, it's with, we'll just say, one of the big federal parties in the United States, the p- federal political parties in the United States. And I get a call one day and they're like, hey, we've got this fundraising email going out. What experiment would you like to run? And again, maybe listeners will have the same experience. I, these are great calls and great emails to get because I always have little random ideas that I'm like, try this. And these guys, we didn't have enough time. They said, we have five minutes until we have to send this, this fundraising message out oh, wow. to, seven, to 700,000 donors to the party. And I'm like, okay, well, what if you just arbitrarily delete every other paragraph? So every paragraph had some new factoid or idea about why you should donate to this party and why this election is so important. And so we're just like arbitrarily delete every one, every other one. So it's it's now paragraph one, three, five remains, but paragraph two, four, and six are gone. And we have independent people read both. And they agree with my read, which is that it's incoherent when we have deleted every other paragraph. Yeah. So it now sense. it used to flow as a six paragraph message. Now it's this incoherent adjacency of paragraphs that are unrelated to each other. And we run the experiment with them and still the shorter one that's incoherent raises 16% more money for the party. It's amazing. (laughs) It's, I mean, yeah, it was just, I mean, the incoherence is what I think just so delicious out of that study. Yeah. And (laughs) the message here is not just randomly cut stuff, right? I mean, but, but the message is even in a situation where you had no time and the, the tactic used was to randomly just pull things out. Even then (laughs) the response rate was better for getting donations for a political campaign. And I think it's just fascinating getting back to this less is more like imagine if you had had 20 minutes and you had spent time thinking about like, okay, how could we make a three paragraph email really coherent and really have a clear call to action and make fewer requests, which we're going to get to in a moment too. It was just, it's just really profound. Yeah. Thank you. I I do want to like, we, I, we're going to walk this all back as this advances, right? Because it doesn't fit every context and it doesn't fit every sender and it doesn't fit every recipient. I am at a university and our, our dean will often send longish messages to everybody. And I will say generously that not everyone reads them closely because they're very long. And I, I work with the dean's communications office and I'm like, hey, you know, we could probably start by just like cutting these things by 90% and then you'd be more likely to have someone read them. And then the the deeds office was was like, well, we have a lot of considerations other than just maximum readability. There are a lot of political stakeholders who want to see this paragraph in or this paragraph. There's just different right. constituencies with different messages, yeah, yeah, or with different sections. So we, these we could think of them as ideas, each paragraph, but like they each section or paragraph speaks to different stakeholders. And so they can't really, I was working with uh, someone who works in the CIA on intelligence assessments and they were saying our intelligence assessments have to be 70 pages because like, that's just the norm. 
And if I were to write a 30-page intelligence assessment, my colleagues and my boss would think I didn't do my job. And so there's just like, there's constraints that make these things not viable, writing less to make it easier to read. So there are other strategies that one could use in each of these settings. So like for our dean, we made it so that the first, the, the message started with one paragraph of, I'm writing to you with these updates, with four updates. Below you will see them. A, B, and C. Mm. Uh, as always, let me know if you have questions. The dean, and then a structured message that makes it easy to skim and everybody knows what it was about. Or the CIA intelligence assessments, they add headings and clear guideposts on how to navigate this document so that it make it easier for, for a busy reader to find what they need out of it. But the idea is when possible, less is more, but sometimes it's not possible. Yeah, but there's so much else you can... I mean, I think... I love the example of, okay, you've got a long communication that needs to go out for whatever reason, politically, it's going to be long. Start with the, hey, here's the four key things in this message. The the too long didn't read the executive summary, whatever you want to call it, right? At the top, I mean, I'm thinking about just my practice. I send out a lot of, um, I shouldn't say a lot, but certainly some long things once in a while. And I could do a better job at doing some of that. You know, I mean, there's just, there's there's almost always an opportunity to do that. And, you know, I was thinking about, speaking of just making ideas simpler, having fewer ideas, going from the email example you just gave that went to almost a million people to the opposite side of like, I'm sending a personal text message. And I love this message example you give in the book. And in fact, I'm just going to read it because we have all gotten text messages like this and we have all sent <laughs> text messages like this. <laughs> so here's the, here's the example. The text is, I'm looking forward to our 6.30 dinner tonight. Let's eat at Tina's Italian restaurant at 651 Ocean Drive. Their breadsticks are awesome. I had them this past spring. I haven't had the lasagna, but I'm ready. It's supposed to be tasty. Let's meet at my place 15 minutes early and we'll walk from there. Sam and Joey are going to join us at the dinner too. And I'm reading that and I'm sort of laughing. Like I know I've sent messages like that before. And you make the point in the book that when you think about this from fewer ideas, what does someone really need to know? That it comes down to two sentences. You could have the text be, dinner is on, meet at my place at 6.15. Done. <laughs> yeah. And, and as a writer, you might have other goals that it, you and I may not bring to this. Like Maybe this person wants to know that Joey and whoever are going to be at the, mess, at the meal, this may you know, they're, they're lifelong enemies and maybe they'll, they'll want a flake who knows, but like you, you prioritize. And of those eight ideas, you decide which are the most important and know that the more you add, the less likely the key info is going to get through. That's the problem that I, I, one of my favorite activities when I do these workshops with, with organizations is having them like, raise your hand. If you ever went into a meeting and were astonished and asked everybody, didn't you read the thing? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you read the thing? And everybody's experienced that. And then turn it on you. Has anyone ever said to you, "Didn't you read the thing?" And you're like, "Yeah, of course." I mean, like, it, it's like part of the the comedy of organizational life is that no one has read the thing. Yeah, yeah. And isn't it uh, Jeff Bezos at Amazon when he was uh, CEO had this practice of like two page memos, like when people come into meetings, because just making peace with the reality that even amongst their executive team, no one was going to read a 20-page brief. So the rule was it had to be two pages or less. And it just comes back down to this core human tendency of we're not going to likely read something, at least not as much or in as, as consistently, if it's longer. And I think like, as I think about this, especially including fewer ideas, like you said, it doesn't mean that every message 
is literally one idea. But it's just being conscious of the fact that the more ideas I put into this, the less likely that someone's going to engage with it or really pay attention to everything fully. And just knowing that there's a line there and just being conscious of that line. Yeah. I, and, and this Amazon and Bezos example is a great one. There, there's another part of it that sort of deeply internalizes what we're talking about, which is there is a word cap and a page cap for these memos before meetings. But the, the other part of it, I remember reading a book last year about it and I thought it was brilliant and, and it really internalizes, we should write in a way that accommodates the way people read. And I don't know if you remember, but all the all the discussion about how they write at Amazon, every meeting starts with seven minutes of everyone reading in silence. Oh, yeah, memos. yeah. Right? And the idea, I'm not advocating for that. That's its own cultural thing and you can whatever. But it is a, a like really profound acceptance that otherwise these things are going to be skimmed on the walk from one office to the next. And whereas this guarantees that they are read and it guarantees that they are able to be read in seven minutes. There's another lens to look through this on in less is more. We talked about using fewer words, fewer ideas, but then the third invitation is make fewer requests. And you write, asking busy readers for more can cause them to do less. Tell me more about that. Just like more ideas will leave you vulnerable to your reader, not reading, not understanding, not responding, asking for multiple things also has this tendency of leading people to not respond. And so the mechanism could be if they're, if you're asking for three things, people may get deterred and they'll be like, I'll deal with this later. They'll procrastinate. Or they may deal with one of them and then get distracted. Or they, they may try to do one of them, get derailed, and life gets in the way. And so what we've seen in experiments, randomized experiments like the ones we've been talking about, where if you add additional requests, you decrease the likelihood that any one of them is going to be responded to. And it's, it's, it leads to like two profound implications. One, okay, we should do fewer, we should ask for fewer things. But two, it really, like all of writing, it can only be effective if we are clear on our own priorities. And so if we're asking for three things, but only one of them is the most important, the other two need to need to be put aside. And I, I do this. I mean, I so you were talking earlier about your emailing of someone who is an interviewee on the pod. Yeah. And then emailing with me. I I, I write the first draft and I'm like, hey, you know, Dave, you it was fun talking to you. There were four things that you asked that I wanted to ask you about afterwards and I'll write my message. And then if, if one of them is actually really important and stands out above all the rest, it's not uncommon for me to just like completely rewrite it, get rid of the other three. I'll side pocket them. So like, if you respond, I'll dump the, I'll, I'll hit you with the next three, but really I just want you, I just want to make sure the priority things get done. Is it as easy as drafting something and starting with Counting up how many requests am I actually making of the other party and just thinking about like, okay, do I need to make all those requests or could I pull some of that out? Is is that a starting point? And if not, what do you find tends to work? So writing does two things, both of which are kind of magical, but they're very different. And I think we often conflate them. The first, writing helps us clarify our own thinking. And that's great. Like first drafts look like that and journaling looks like that. But 
something we are sending to someone else doesn't need to be the process through which we clarified our own thinking. The second thing writing does is, and, and Jessica and I talk about this in the book and with a little, little comic strip, I think, is the magic of getting an idea from my head into some kind of form. And then eventually that idea in very close similarity ends up in your head, like truly incredible. But the process of effectively getting it from my head to your head is not the same thing as me clarifying my own thinking. So just because it took me seven paragraphs to figure out that what I'm really asking you is question X, I can then go through it and be like, okay, if the goal was to ask you question X, it's a different project. And then I just write it differently. Mm. And so I just like, it's worth thinking of them differently. And I think often somehow we either think people would like to know our thought process or how we got there, or we don't even think that there's something different between our thought process and effectively communicating to you. There's something so powerful about just getting it down in writing, whatever medium it is, text message, email, memo. It it has a way of just starting that process, right? Of like, okay, all this stuff came out. Now what do I, if I can stop and actually just think about what's really important here. It's so funny you mentioned this too. I sent a email to a friend of mine a week or two ago, and I knew I sort of knew I was breaking all the rules when I sent the email because I I wanted to follow up with him on seven or eight things. And I should have sent them in separate messages, but I actually put in the topic line, the subject line of the email, eight random things, unorganized and unrelated, but clearly I, I just like, I was leaned into the hilariousness, <laughs> hilariousness of it. And I knew it was breaking the rules and I was like sort of laughing about it and writing the message. And and then he wrote back and was like, oh, that's really funny that you sent all this and unorganized thoughts and all that. And then he still missed several of them. <laughs> <laughs> which is not his fault at all. It was like totally I even knew going into it. Okay, I'm I'm making too many requests in one message with too many unrelated things. And it's just the awareness of starting with that and then getting something down on paper and then thinking like, okay, what can I prioritize here? If I'm willing to just stop and think about that for a moment. Again, not every message that we send, but the ones that especially are important going to key stakeholders that are going to have more visibility, a little bit of time there makes a big difference. Yeah. And this is again, why goals matter. So I, I was working with people on a sales team and they're like, look, I, I also want to build a relationship with the recipient. And I want to, my, my singular goal, maybe right now is I want to close this deal, but it's a long-term relationship and I want to build and maintain this relationship, which means I want to add a little personality and you were being funny there. And so you just have to balance the competing goals. It, we are not robots maximally efficiently transferring information back and forth. We're humans transferring information in the, pro, in the context of relationships and trying to build relationships. And so like we were saying, like there, there's no right answer. There's just trade-offs. And one of the things that we're really trying to drive home is that we should be acutely aware of the trade-offs. Yeah. It is not costless to add more information. Yeah, it is. It is not costless, and we pay the cost as writers in failing to achieve our goals as effectively as we could. You said the word robots a moment ago, and probably the elephant <laughs> in the room that we haven't talked about is AI, because of course AI is changing a lot about how we think about creating content and what we do with it. And there's so much we could say. One starting point, though, is you have actually set up a tool. That's specifically designed to help people get better at this. I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about that and how could folks engage with it if they want to get better at this as one of many tools they might use? 
Sure. AI is, well, let's just talk about generative AI for now, the chat GPT kind of AI or, or Gemini or Bard or Anthropic. The power, it's not the only, but part of the like power and revolution that they bring is that they're so effective at generating content. And that's actually the way you talked about it. We are talking about, just to flip it, we are focused on how the human reads and writing in a way that accommodates and reflects the way they actually read. We, uh, with some computer scientist colleagues here, we tuned GPT-4, which is OpenAI's, uh, as of the time of this recording, their most advanced GPT, on the principles, the six principles and the 20-something rules on how do we write so busy readers are more likely to read and respond. And then we trained it on pre and post examples of email. So we actually developed a tool on our website that is really good at converting an email that a normal human writes into one that will actually be easy for a normal human to read using these principles. It adds structure. It makes it skimmable. Where possible, it cuts words. And so it's at our website, www.writingforbusyreaders.com. We should put it in the show notes. But it's awesome. And I, I have no idea how many people will use it this week, but it is rapidly, its usage is growing and we're really excited about it as a tool. Yeah, well, I think it's, I mean, so much of, I mean, we're early days on AI, but clearly it is going to be a key tool that all of us utilize in our work. It's not going to replace what we do as humans, of course, at least in most cases, but it's going to be a tool we're all going to use. And what a great example of that. Like, uh, I think it's like a fascinating use of, you've created this book, done all the research with Jessica on like, how to actually make messages better so people read them, and then take an existing message, utilize the website to actually then make suggestions based on all the principles you've researched and practically change a message. Like, super cool. So we'll link to it, and I hope folks will try it out just as a starting point for like whether you use it in practice or not, just to get you a real practical look at like a message you might send. What would it look like putting it through these lenses and these rules. And if you do that, what a, what a key place to start. I love it. Todd Rogers is co-author of Writing for Busy Readers, Communicate More Effectively in the Real World. Todd, thank you to you and Jessica for all your work. So appreciate it. Yeah, I, I, I hope this is helpful and I'm really grateful to get to share it with you. Thanks, Dave. If this conversation was helpful for you, a few related episodes I'd recommend. One of the themes you may have heard in this conversation is thinking about influencing others. There's an element here of sales and marketing, right? Meeting people where they are and influencing them so they move forward and respond to the request you're making. It's one of the reasons Daniel Pink wrote a book called To Sell is Human. He made the point in that book that we all have an element of sales in our roles, regardless of what part of the organization you work for, regardless if you're in a for-profit or a non-profit or a government agency. There's an element of sales we all need to be better at. That's why I talked with him on episode 84, The Surprising Truth About Influencing Others goes very much in the spirit of this conversation and how to influence in a way that's effective and serves the other party well. Also recommended episode 145, Improve Your Writing with Practical Typography. Matthew Butterick was my guest on that episode. We talked about his book that's available on the internet with lots of great guidance on how to use words, fonts, 
practices with grammar effectively. We didn't talk about that much in this conversation. There's so much there from Matthew in that conversation that complements this well, episode 145 for that. And maybe you heard this conversation today and you said, hey, I'd actually like to work on being a better reader of what people send, but also of the books that I'm reading. And if that's you, I'd recommend the episode with Zonka Arns on episode 564, Make Your Reading More Meaningful. We talked about his very popular book, How to Take Smart Notes, the Zettelkasten system that him and so many others have embraced and utilized. I use a version of that system for my own note-taking. We talk in detail on how to really make reading more meaningful and to capture ideas well in episode 564. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. There is a topic area under the website called writing skills. So if you're looking for all the conversations we've had in the past to help you to get better at your writing, I would recommend that as one of the areas inside of the free membership. And if you haven't set up your free membership, go over to coachingforleaders.com right now, set up your free membership. You'll be able to search all of the past episodes by topic. And one of the other pieces of uh, key benefits, rather, inside the free membership is my interview and book notes. One of the things that I'm doing every week, speaking of being concise, is trying to find what are the four or five or six quotes or brief paragraphs from an author's book when we're featuring a book on the show that I think are the most important, the most critical for the conversation we've had. I've done that with Todd and Jessica's book today and highlighted those. Those are all available in my book and interview notes for every episode where we feature it. So you can go and find under a book and interview notes inside the free membership. You can track down all of those, the key highlights, some of my key interview points, uh, some things we don't always get to on the show. All of those are part of the free membership. One of many of the benefits. Go over to coachingforleaders.com for more. And in the spirit of writing, you've been hearing me talk about Coaching for Leaders Plus for a while. I have been writing over the last year monthly long-form articles for our Plus members. And a few months ago, I sent out a survey to all our Plus members and said, how do I make this even better for you? And one of the themes I got back was right in alignment with this conversation today is folks said, hey, this is working well, I'd like to hear from you more often, fewer words. And so I've changed it up in Coaching for Leaders Plus and upgraded what I'm doing. Rather than sending long monthly, long-form articles just once a month, this year I've actually migrated to short-form weekly journal entries that are going to all of our Plus members. So folks are hearing from me more. If you're a member of Plus, you've already been seeing those messages from me in recent weeks. And if you haven't yet, checked out Coaching for Leaders Plus. It is a way for you to hear even more from me. More often, now much more concise, my thoughts, my integration of what you're hearing on the episodes that will help support you in your learning and meet you where you are right now. For more on all the details of Coaching for Leaders Plus, just go to coachingforleaders.plus. It's one of the key benefits inside of Plus. Coaching for Leaders is edited by Andrew Kroger. Production support is provided by Sierra Priest. Next Monday, I'm glad to welcome Stanford professor Bob Sutton to the show. We're going to be talking about the way to handle oblivious leadership. We've all dealt with that at some point. Bob and I will be talking about what you can do tactically when you find yourself in that situation. Join me for that conversation with him next week, and I'll see you back on Monday.